I would ask that you would grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John. We've been in this series that we've entitled Living in the Light. And since the beginning of the year, uh, as I told you uh, early on, I think it was at the beginning of January, we would be in our shorts by the time uh, we got done with this series. And we are in chapter 4, in the middle part of chapter 4, and uh, I hear the word 90 degrees in our uh, three or four day forecast. And so uh, God has been faithful, as we have been faithful, working through this great letter uh, by the Apostle John. And he has been sharing with us what it means to have a vibrant faith that has the full assurance that we are children of God. And last week we uh, invested our time focusing in on the false teachers, those who had failed the test of doctrine, and those who had walked away from the faith because they were denouncing Jesus Christ and some of the core tenets of the faith of Christianity. And so now John seems to do a 180, if you will. After focusing in on false teachers, he now uh, departs from that uh, to focus in again on the subject of love. This is a subject that we've explored before in this letter, and he seems to do it again. Now the question is, why does John do that 180? Uh, John is an aged apostle. Many believe that he was in his 80s, uh, maybe even his 90s, uh, when he writes uh, this letter. And yet, as we look at it, we can ask the question, was John losing some of his mind, if you will, because of his uh, aged life? Maybe he had uh, just forgotten what he wanted to say about false teachers and moved to a different subject. I, I had a grandfather that was a lot like that. He would be talking about one particular subject, and then uh, because of his advanced years, he would move to a completely different subject matter. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Of course, this is being written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we have to believe that John is not only coherent, but he has a plan on what he is going to say to the people at the church of Ephesus. Now, how do we balance that out as we get into this uh, text this morning? How do we understand this change from false teachers to that of the subject of love? I want you to understand that the reason why John is writing the people in the church of Ephesus is because false teachers had infiltrated the church. They were a part of the assembly. They were a part of the fellowship. And they started to teach heresies, things that went contrary to the apostles' teaching. And as a result of that, these heretics, these false teachers, went away from the church. They went out from them, and they went and started new churches with new uh, ideas and beliefs. And what was left was a group of people wondering, uh, where did those people go? Those people who said they had this strong spiritual connection with God, this special intimacy, this special knowledge, why would they go? And, and if they went, did the truth go with them? Did the intimacy of our relationship with God go with them? And John says, no, it hasn't left. In fact, you are the one that has the Holy Spirit uh, residing in you. You are the one that has the anointing. You are the one that follows the message that we have proclaimed from the beginning. And the way we know that is how you love one another. You see, it's not just having the right doctrine, as important as that is, but it goes far beyond that because the Bible says, uh, Jesus in fact says, uh, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Uh, the test is not only a doctrinal test, but a test of affection. And John wants us to understand that we can have all the right beliefs, 
but if we don't have the right affection, then we have nothing. And so let us look at 1 John this morning, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, as we continue in this series. I would ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word as we read it and ask God's blessing on it. We will get into uh, our message this morning. This is what John says uh, to the people of the church of Ephesus as well as to us today. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but, it, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. Father God, we hold Your Word in our hands. And Your Word is truth. And Lord, you ask the Father uh, to uh, sanctify us by your truth. And Lord, we have talked about being sanctified, being set apart with the right theology, the right doctrine. And yet, Lord, we also recognize that that is only one of three tests that John places before us. Lord, this book was written that we may know that we have eternal life. And Lord, we recognize that that eternal life and that assurance that is given is not just by having the right statement of faith, but also living out that faith by loving those around us. So Lord, I know that in this world of struggle, in this world of hatred, in this world of vying for position against one another, Lord, that it's not even uh, immune in the area of the church. We have struggles, we have disputes, we have quarreling and fighting going on here. That Lord, it would begin today that we would love one another. Father, that as we look at the example that you gave us by sending your son Jesus uh, to give all that he was and all that he is on the cross of Calvary, that we too would give all that we are and all that we have to our brothers and sisters, to those who are lovable, to those who are unlovable in the world around us. Lord, it is then that we make evident you, the unseen God. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts and minds would be changed. I pray that we would confess our sin of being unloving, our sin of being disinterested with those around us, and that your love would compel us to be ambassadors, to be your messengers of the gospel of love. In Christ's name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. As I was thinking this week about last week's message, I thought that as a church we should feel pretty good about ourselves. We're a church that holds firmly to the message that has been articulated through the prophets and the apostles. 
we have to be feeling pretty good for a lot of reasons after a message like last week. Uh, This is just in the new year that we've adopted a brand new statement of faith. In a text in verses uh, verses 1 through 6 telling us that uh, we need to acknowledge Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and hold true to the message of the apostles, we can look at the statement of faith that we have uh, put together as a church and um, now more than ever we have a robust disclosure of the Christian faith as a church. Our statement of faith clearly and passionately lifts up the greatness and holiness of our God in heaven. And we exalt throughout that statement of faith the person and work of Jesus Christ, that He alone is our Lord and Savior. It clearly delineates the nature and person of the Holy Spirit, uplifting and holding firm to the idea of the inerrant and total trustworthiness of the Holy Scriptures. We should be proud of ourselves. We should be able to say, look, we have not fallen to false teaching. We have stayed true to the faith that has been delivered to the saints once and for all. And yet, as we think about those things, we can also feel good about our practices of a solid biblical faith. As I think about our ministries, I think about uh, us as a church, a church that longs to, longs for, and desires to study the Word of God when they gather together. Uh, a church that has a worship team that strives for our lyrics to be theologically correct and accurate. And that in our small groups and in our uh, readings, we're careful to study uh, from the authors who hold fast to the Word of God and preach faithfully the message of the gospel. My friends, we have much to be proud of. Uh, we are a strong doctrinal church. But that's the thing that John wants to bring to our attention. Uh, there may be some that have this idea that because we have the right doctrine, we have everything that we need. And yet what John tells us is something that we need to be reminded of from Paul's words. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I want us to think about all that I've just talked about in our doctrinal integrity, that which we can be so very proud of that we cannot forget the thing that is most important. In 1 Corinthians 13, this is what the Apostle Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my bodies to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Because love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, It is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, love always trusts, love always hopes, love always perseveres. He says, love never fails. So we're proud that we have a robust and, and biblical system of beliefs and theology. So we haven't fallen prey to uh, some of the doctrines that uh, our, our sister church, if you will, down the street uh, has fallen to. So we haven't fallen to the false teachers that are in the world. 
But what, jo- what John wants us to remember is, if we do not love, that doctrine is nothing. That system and belief and that coherent faith that we have is nothing but an opportunity for us to be proud and arrogant in our own thinking. And so John says to us, to have a vibrant faith, to live in the light, is to have the right doctrine, but to live out that doctrine in the right affection. And that affection is love. All the studying we do, all the things that we do to prepare ourselves to have the right doctrine, if it is not filtered through the affection of love, then we have nothing. So let me ask you this question today, Village Bible Church. Do you love? Do you love? And even more than that, not only do you love, but do you believe in love? Now you say, how can you believe in love? Do you believe that the greatest of all things that God has given us is love? Do you believe that the greatest opportunity that you have in this world is to imitate the Father that you call your own by loving the world around you? Do you believe that uh, your greatest passion and your greatest pursuit in all of this world is to first of all love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself? Do you believe that love is one of the chief cornerstones of all that Christ articulated to us through his word? Oh, we are a church so many times that are so good at believing the right things, and yet I think we fail this elementary truth of loving one another. And so here it is. John comes and he says, okay, you believe the right things. You've been able to recognize, he says in verse 6, the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. But has it changed your life? Has it been made evident? And this is what he says in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. Now bookend that with the last part of our text. Because he says if we uh, love one another, he says in verse 12 that no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Do you recognize this morning that your Christianity rises and falls, not on your body of theology per se, but on your ability to love one another? That your opportunity to show the world the unseen God and the effect and change that that God has brought into your life can only be seen not through a body of theology, but in your showing that love to the world that needs it. This is the amazing thought that John has. Completely coherent in his thinking, he is moving us from not just the idea of the head of our faith, but the heart of our faith as well. And so how do we believe in love? How do we get to that place? Well, the first thing we must understand is that we must understand what love is. Now, I talked about this and gave you a definition uh, some weeks ago when John brought this subject matter up uh, in chapter 2 and 3. But I want to bring it up again so that we understand and recognize what John is talking about. And this is the definition that I want us to use. Let's throw it up on the screen. Biblical love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. Write that down if you don't have that. Biblical love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. Does that define you this morning? 
Does that define your Christianity? This isn't a warm and fuzzy feeling that the world talks about, but this is a kind of love that is, is to be held as tightly for the Christian as the doctrine of Jesus Christ. This is our mandate, to love like this. Because it is not simply just a mental assent to the importance of love in the life of the Christian, but John nips that in the bud when he says in 1 John 3.18, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and the truth. You know that you have to love. He says this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, love one another. But do you see that love being made manifest as you live it out in action, not only in word and deed? So let me ask you this this morning. When was the last time you saw biblical love in your life? When was the last time you moved out of your comfort zone and lived out an example of biblical love to the world around you? Not expecting anything in return, because it's self-sacrificing. Not just doing something in the moment because it's a caring commitment. Not doing it to seek something for yourself, but seeking the highest good of the one that you are desiring to love. This is the love that God shows us. And so if we want to believe in this kind of love, if we want our church to be founded on this kind of love, then we must understand what it means to believe in love. And to do that, there are three things I want us to explore this morning. First of all, believing in love involves embracing the proper description that is given in the Scriptures. What is this type of love? What is this love that John wants us to practice? We've got a definition, but what is the description? Notice what John says in verse 7, "'Dear friends, let us love one another.'" For love comes from God, and everyone who has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. There's a couple things within this description that we must embrace as believers. The first thing that I want us to see is that John is practicing what he preaches. Remember, John is the apostle of love. He had a loving disposition uh, to the people around him. Now, he didn't always have it perfect because we know that he was named one of the sons of thunder. We know that the affection that he showed uh, would also go on the other side of the spectrum and that when uh, people uh, turned away from the message of the gospel, John and his brother James would, call, would desire to call down fire on heaven and destroy a whole city. It doesn't sound very loving, and yet it shows uh, the place that we have as believers, that sometimes we're so capable of love, and other times we're capable of such terrible hatred towards the world around us. I've told you before that my middle son Joshua is the Apostle John. Oh, he loves to cuddle up next to you, and he looks at you with those cute little eyes, and he says, Daddy, I love you, and Daddy, just give me a hug, and you just got to love kids like that until you tell them to do something. And then these fangs come out from his front incisor teeth, and, and the eyes turn from this beautiful brown to this really deep red. And he looks, and the finger comes up with most middle children. Hey, they, they do that, and they say, what are you telling me to do? You don't tell me what to do. That's the Apostle John. 
a lover one second, one who you don't want to be around the next. And yet that's probably true for all of us. There's probably some truth to that. Oh, some days we're able to love in amazing ways. And yet in other ways, in other days, we find ourselves love is fleeting from us. And that the easy thing to do is to speak words of hatred, to act out in anger with malice and with slander and rebellion. And so here John, being this lover of people, shares a couple different times the phrase, dear friends. He's speaking to those that he loves. It could be translated beloved in other translations. And he lays forth to his friends, to those that he loves, a proper description. And it first of all involves an admonition. It involves an admonition. In essence, what he's doing is he's giving them a command. He's commanding him, says, let us love one another. Uh, Now, twice in this passage, we're going to see that love is commanded. He's commanded them to love one another, as he has earlier in the book. But he also says in verse 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's an obligation. And what John is saying is this isn't a feeling that you can have as believers, but this is a debt because of what God has done for you. You ought to do the same because God has loved you so much. Now you are called. Now you are being obligated to love. But I don't feel like it, Tim. I I don't want to do that, Tim. It doesn't matter. God says that this is an active part of the will. You are called to love. But notice, as we move on, we see that it's not just an admonition, but there's an assurance given. John reminds us that assurance of our faith comes as we love. Notice he gives a positive assurance and a negative assurance. At the middle part of verse 7, he says the following, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. If you look at your life, you will know whether you're a child of God, not just based on your doctrinal statement, what you believe, but how you live that out. And so you will be able to see as a child of God, do I love, as we defined it, as self-sacrificing, as a caring commitment to the world around me, do I show love and affection to that world? Even when it's difficult, even when my enemies uh, try to hurt me, do I show a loving disposition and not just word, but also indeed uh, this affection of love? John says, if you're loving like that, in a continual manner, you're, a born, you're born of God. Now, how do we know that? Because it tells us in the text, because love comes from God. And the only way that we can love as God has desired and God has commanded us to is to uh, get that love from Him. He's the only source. And so we can only get into that source and be a part of that source when we know God and have experienced God. And this is what I mean. You can't love unless you've experienced God's love. There's no way around it. You can't make up this love on your own. You first have to have been loved to be able to extend that love to the world around you. Now notice the negative assurance of it is found in verse 8. He says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. The idea here is that you can know positively that you're in the faith or you can know if you look at your life and say, 
just as the false teachers did, as they looked at, as they held their body of belief and saw that they didn't believe the right things, the people were able to say, you're a false teacher. You failed the test. Well, likewise, when it comes to love, if you look at your life and you say, the only reason why I love people is because of what it gets for me. The only reason why I love people is so that people think that, man, Tim, you're a nice guy. You're a, a loving guy. Look how great Tim is. If that's the reason why you love is what you get out of it or how you look, then we've got a problem because that is not the kind of love that God is talking about, and it's time for us to see if we pass the test or not. Now, notice he goes on and he says uh, this assurance is seen because it's an attribute of God. Now, I want to be careful because uh, this isn't just an attribute of God because it says that God is love. He's the embodiment of all things that are love. We don't define love, or we, I'm sorry, we don't define God through the lens of love, but we define love through the lens of our understanding of who God is. God is is love. He's the beginning and end. Uh, I'm sorry, that love finds its beginning and end in the person and work and nature of who God is. He's the embodiment of that love. He is uh, what defines love. He's the source and preservation behind all love. Any time that we love sacrificially, any time that we love according to the biblical definition of love, we can never take credit for it because it is God who we get that love from. It's all from him. It has nothing to do with us. And so we need to be careful of this statement because there are churches that say because God is love, then God doesn't judge. And so you can live however you want because God is love. Or don't worry if you've sinned because God, God overlooks sin and, and he knows you're having a hard day and he, he loves you. And he loves you so much that how could he ever send you, Mr. and Mrs. Lovable, to a place called hell? Let me tell you something. God shows his love even in his judgments. God shows his love not only when he gives you good, but when he brings problems and pain into your life. God shows his love even when he condemns the sinner to hell. Everything that God does is funneled through his nature of being love. And yet, we know that we must balance all of his attributes of who he is in perfect balance. So when he says he's a God of wrath, he is, and he's completely lovable and loving in that process. This is a part of who God is, and it needs to be a part of who we are. Love cannot be an add-on to who we are, but it must break through into the very essence of who we are. We must be a people of love. When people see you, do they say, wow, one of the ways that I would characterize you as an individual is that you are a person of love. Or would they say you're one that loses their temper? You're one that speaks about who you are and your pursuits and, and, and the great things you have done. If we want to be like God, if we want to be like Christ, then the world around us will say they are lovers of all that is good, all that is holy, and all that God has called them to be. But notice, there's an attitude. 
Now, the next two, this attitude and the next one, aren't explicitly in the text, but I think they're important. Because if we just leave it at that God is love, in our human thinking, we may begin to have this idea that God is some, uh, if you will, jolly, overweight, celestial being sitting up in heaven just smiling, and, and he's this warm kind of Dr. Phil type person, just Mr. Lovable. You just want to go up and, and hug him and love him. He's like uh, uh, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man from the Ghostbusters. He's like the Michelin Man from the Michelin Tire commercials. Just this kind of cuddly guy that you just want to get in, up close and personal with. But that's not what we understand of God because love is not just his embodiment of, of who he is and what he is about, but it works through how he looks and understands that which is around him. And he is love. And that means that he has a loving disposition to those things that are apart from him. In John 3.16, it says that he loved the world. In uh, Genesis chapter 1, every day that he created, he said it was very good. He enjoyed what he created. He had an affection for what he created. And he defined it as good. He has this attitude of love. And since the dawn of time, God has held an affection for all of creation in his heart. And even his a special love for that creation that he calls humanity. But it doesn't just stop with warm and fuzzy feelings. Because it moves to action. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave. I think of the Hallmark, uh, old Hallmark adage, when you care enough to send the very best. God did that before Hallmark did, before you did. Because God, with his uh, embodiment of love, and because of his attitude of love, he looked and he saw that the creation that he had that was very good, when he looked at the humanity that he had created, that he had a relationship with, had fallen into sin, he looked and he said, it is not good enough for me just to have an attitude of love towards these people, but an active pursuit of that love towards them. And what does he do? He gives his one and only son. It is there that we go back to the definition of this love. Because God loved by showing self-sacrificing and a caring commitment to seek the highest good in us whom he loved. We had the biggest problem uh, that before us was sin. And he said, not only will I look to them and say I love them, not only will I uh, blow kisses to them, if you will, and just gush over them, but I will help them in their greatest hour of need, and I will do it by sending my son this is God, and this is the proper description of the love of God. Are you living it out? Is it even a thought in your mind as you go out into the world, I want to love as God did? Well, John goes on, and he says it's not just enough to embrace a description but to see it in real life, to see it in 3D, and that's where we see that it must involve examining the powerful demonstration of love given by Jesus Christ. Notice our text again in verse uh, 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He has, he has shown this kind of love. We don't have to go looking for it. He has shown it to us. How did he show it, John? 
He showed it by sending his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He goes on in verse 10 and says, this is love. You want to know what this love is? It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What does this love look like? As we look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, as we read these verses, there should be, if you will, all kinds of bells and whistles going off in our mind. As we uh, resonate our thoughts on the love of God, there should be a deep sense of joy welling up inside of us that should lead us to a life uh, just to explode and say, God loves me. And I know that God loves me because he sent his son Jesus to die for me. And that's an amazing thought. But for many of us, we, we say, ho-hum, so God loves me. I'm not sure I really believe it. I mean, other people have told me they love me and they've only hurt me. But let's go back to how God loves. He loves by sacrificing for you. He loves by caring for you on an everyday basis, telling you that he will never leave you nor forsake you, giving you all that you need in the good times and in the bad. And that should well up in us a reason to praise. That's what one of the songs that we sing here at Village says, that's why we praise him, that's why we sing. We sing and we praise God because he loved us. He didn't have to, but he did. In our hour of greatest need, he came to our rescue by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't get you spiritual goosebumps, then you are failing the test because that is the whole reason why we live as Christians. That is the whole reason why we worship God. That's the whole reason why we should be here because God loved us and he sent his son to die for you and me. That's it. That's the ball game. But what does this love look like as we look at Christ? First of all, we see that love involves taking the first step. It involves taking the first step. Notice what our text says. I want us to move down to verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. What does that mean? He, He goes on to tell us in verse 19 what this means, John tells us. He says, we love because he first loved us. Let us never forget that it is God who pursues us. Let us never forget that it is God who came running after us. We have this terminology that I found Jesus I invited Jesus to come into my heart. I, uh, I recognized who Jesus was, and I saw Jesus, and I, and I tasted and saw that Jesus was good, and I, and I asked him to be in my life. And that is good. In some ways, it's theologically wrong because it is Jesus who comes. It is Jesus who comes running after us. It is Jesus, like the good shepherd that he is, who goes and finds us, the sheep, who are so quick to wander away to bring us back into the fold of God. The great hymn, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, says, We are born to wander, Lord, I feel it, born to leave the God I love. And it is Jesus Christ who comes and takes us and brings us back and pursues us by taking the first step while we were pursuing our lives of lust, 
pursuing that which we saw with our eyes, the cravings that we felt in our flesh, the boastful things that we said in our mouth while we were doing those things, it is Jesus who comes. Because God demonstrated his love, Paul says in Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is pursuing us. He's running after us. And, and, and this may shock some of you, and this is not uh, to be used just to be funny, but as we're giving the proverbial finger back to God, God is sitting there and saying, in light of what you're doing in your rebellion and arrogance and your stiff-necked ideas and thoughts that you are all that you think you are, I'm going to pursue you even though you lack zero in anything that I need or any good of your own. I love you, and I'm going to pursue you, and that means I'm going to take the first step, and I will pursue you even if that means that you push me away over and over again. I will love you until you bow the knee to my lordship in your life. This is what I tell Amanda every day. And it's true, because Amanda hated me. Some of you know this. Amanda absolutely despised me for the first couple months that I knew her. And I, it's not funny, Russ. She did. And she couldn't understand. She would go home and tell her family, this guy just keeps pursuing me. And I told her the first day I met her, you will marry a guy like me. And she says, no way, Jose. I said, my name's not Jose, it's Tim, and you will marry a guy like me. And she didn't believe it. Oh, how ignorant she was. (laughs) And I pursued her, and I pursued her. And so when we argue, when we fight, I always remind her, it was I. You love your children? Remember who pursued you. Remember, I, I went after you. You didn't want me. Oh, how we need to remember as believers, it is not us who pursued God, but God who pursued us. He showed that love and affection. He warmed our hearts to understand and know that He is love. Oh, how we need to take the first step in showing love to the world. Oh, but I'm waiting. They're they're not very nice. Take the first step. Oh, Tim, you don't understand. You don't understand what they've said to me. Take the first step. Tim, you don't don't understand the the pain and the suffering that this individual has brought. You love them because God demonstrated his love towards us when we were angry towards him, when we were rebellious towards him, when we were God-haters and insolent. God still loved us. If we want to be like Christ, we need to take the first step. Notice the next thing. It involves being a sacrifice for others. In verses 9 and 10 again, it says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He goes on, he says, Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The way that God showed his love is he sent Jesus. He sent the best that he had, all of that he had, because it is God who comes in the form of a man, God incarnate in flesh, the God-man. He comes, and he doesn't just teach us how to love. Oh, that's not hard to do. I'll tell you, it's very easy as a preacher to tell you to love. It's easy. It just rolls right off the tongue. But I will tell you how hard it is to love. Oh, I failed at it this week. I got to tell you, in my anger yesterday, I yelled at an employee of mine, 
and threw a cordless phone across a room because he took something that I needed for an event and I was angry at him. Oh, it's easy to preach. It just rolls right off. It's hard to love, isn't it? But this is what Jesus does. He sacrificed. Now, before we get this idea that not only did God make the first move, but, but that in essence now in this relationship that we have, we're this arguing couple with God. God is the husband, we are the wife, and we're bickering and we're squabbling. And, and as the good husband, the husband says, okay, uh, I'll say I'm sorry. For the sake of the unity of our marriage and our relationship, I'll say I'm sorry. But this is not what happens. This is not how God operates we were sinners. We're the hostile ones. We're the offenders. And, and not only does God act first, but he acts, if you will, with thermonuclear weapons. He says, I am going to show you, even though you hate me, how much I love you, and I'm going to give away the best that I have. Oh, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. And so he sends Jesus, and he sends Jesus to a world that hates him. So what can Jesus do so that he can be the payment for your sin? It says that he is the atoning sacrifice. This is an important word because in this word we get the idea of propitiation and expiation. Those are theological terms that maybe you don't understand or know. And what that means is, is while we were yelling and screaming at God, telling him how wrong he was to get involved in our lives, Jesus was hanging on the cross, not just becoming sin on our behalf, but enduring the incredible wrath, the infinite wrath of God the Father, and pouring out his wrath on his Son. God, Jesus Christ endured that on that cross of Calvary while you and I shook our fists at God. That is sacrifice. When that enemy of yours is calling you names and striking and trying to strike you and bring you down and do whatever he can to bring harm into your life, it is you who go and you take the first step and you do the best thing that you can and you show extravagant love to that enemy that hates you so much. While they shake their fist at you, while they call your religion and your faith garbage, you show them the love that Christ showed on the cross of Calvary. It is because of Christ's love that he atoned. Well, why did he do this? The text tells us so that we might live. That's it. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. But because of God's great love for us, in his mercy and love, he sent Jesus Christ so that we may no longer be dead in our trespasses and sin, but that so we may be, through the power of the Holy Spirit, made alive in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us. So how do we get it? It involves being led by the Spirit. Again, this isn't per se in the text, but we can't miss it. Because what we're going to be told here in a moment is to live that same way. Pursue that same way of life. Well, how do we do it? How do we get there? How do we pursue such a life? The text tells us, uh, this, uh, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Well, Tim, I'm not Jesus. I know that. Either am I. But God never commands something of us that we can't do. So how is it that Jesus, who entered into a world of hatred, loved? The answer is he was led by the Spirit. 
He knew the will of God, his Father in heaven. And every time that a decision needed to be made, every time that uh, he saw a group of people, instead of seeing them for what humanly he could view them as, he looked at them through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. And he saw being led by the Spirit. As he looked at a crowd, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Through the leading of the Holy Spirit and through his divine calling as the Messiah, the Son of God, he looked over Jerusalem and he said, oh, how I want to be like a hen who gathers its chicks. And he weeps over Jerusalem. As he looks over the tomb of his friend Lazarus and sees what sin brings in its ultimate penalty of death, it says that he wept because he loved. The way that we love is the way that Christ showed us in his humanity how he loved, by being led by the Spirit. You can't love by getting up and saying, my new resolution this week is to love. But it begins by abiding in him and remaining in him and pursuing him and allowing the anointing that John talks about earlier in the book to be made manifest in us so that we can then love one another. That's where it begins. Where does it end? Number three, let's close with this. It involves engaging in a powerful display of love towards others. Let me close with this reading of this text. Dear friends, since God has loved us so much, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Oh, what's the application? The application is, as imitators of God, as dearly loved children, let us live lives of love, Paul says in Ephesians 5.1. Are we? And where do we see that uh, personal display of love being seen? I want to give you four areas. Number one, this kind of love should be seen amongst couples. It should be involved in our marital relationships with one another. The greatest of all human relationships is the covenant relationship between a man and a woman that lasts for a lifetime. And I will tell you that if the, church, if the couples in this church would live out this type of love, marriages would be restored. But you don't know what he's done, Tim. You don't know what she has done. Make the first move. Sacrifice. Recognize that you're a sinner and you're in need of forgiveness and grace. Let that love of Christ compel you, husbands, to love your wife as Christ loved the church, to protect her, to sacrifice for her, to care for her and nurture her, to give her all that you have and all that you are for her good, a caring commitment to put her above all other earthly things. Wives, this kind of biblical love means to respect and to honor and to submit to your husband's leading, to affirm him. This kind of love should saturate both husbands and wife your conversation. It should be the love of Christ that rules your emotions. It should be the love of Christ that rules, might I add, in the bedroom where sacrifice and intimacy and transparency are needed most. 
Let the love of Christ be the example of every marriage in this place that seeks the highest good of your spouse over even your own needs. Second, to our children. Oh, parents, let us love our children. And boy, do I know that that's hard to do sometimes. Amanda was gone all day. That is the cardinal sin rule of a mother, to be gone all day. And uh, half of the day, my youngest son was running around naked in the backyard. Why? Because he didn't want to wear his diaper. I don't know where he got this. All of a sudden, he doesn't want to wear his diaper. I tell Amanda, has he ever done this before? No, he's never done it. I said, of course he's never done this before. Because you're never gone all day. But today you were, and the kid's running around naked as a jaybird. I understand that it's not always easy to love children. I have three boys under the age of seven. I've got experience. But let me tell you something. Parents, let the love of Christ compel you to spend time with them. Let the example of Christ empower you to turn off the TV, to say no to a tea time, to say no to a hobby, to say no to the things that you think are more important, and to love on them because they won't always be kids. Let the love of Christ and the example of Christ show you the need to discipline your children. Jesus never tells us because he loves us that the world revolves around us. He says, I love you, but remember, you live for me. Children, love your parents. Love your parents as Christ loved his Father. Honor them. Respect them. Do as they say, not some of the time, but my friends, even my young teenage friends, do it all the time. Don't disrespect them because you don't like the way that they do things. But simply put, what God tells you, whether you like it or not, is that your response to your parents should be the following, not my will, but your will be done. I know that doesn't make, me, uh, make a lot of fans in my uh, 5 to 21 years category. But you have one command in Scripture, obey mom and dad. Let mom and dad figure everything else out. You have one response in your life until you hit the age where you can do it on your own, and that is you love mom and dad. You do as they say, and you obey them, even if they're not perfect. Third, in our church, oh, how we need to be a church that loves. We need to be a church that sacrifices for one another. We must be willing to do all that we can to show Christ to each other. If this means that we have to do things differently, then we should. This means that we must, and please hear me, we must become from this day forward a people that show immense hospitality to one another. But Tim, this church is big, and I don't know everybody. We'll get to know them. They need your love. They need the love of Christ to be shown to them. This world is tough. And people come each and every week to this church as a place of refuge, as a place to be recharged so they can go back out into the world and be ambassadors and and apostles and messengers for the cause of Christ. And some people are dangling by a thread in their walk with Jesus Christ. There are some here today who are ready to give up and give in. And all they need is someone to love them. Someone to remind them that God's not done with them. 
A quarter of our church right now are people that we would define that have zero community with this church as a whole. What that means is that for the most part, 25% of the people here say that church is important to them on Sunday mornings, but they haven't gotten in any more involved in the community of VBC. That needs to change. If we are a people that love one another, let it begin with the household of God. Let us do good. Let us serve well so that the people around us may look at 847 North Route uh, Route 47 that I don't know what they believe. And I don't know what their whole idea is. But I can tell you when I see those people who are represented as Village Bible Church, I see how they love one another. Finally, our community. We are called in our mission statement because we're called in the Scriptures to love our neighbors to the point of action. When was the last time we did that? It may mean walking across the street. It may be crossing your own lawn. But it means getting out of your comfort zone. It means opening your homes. It means giving your time. It may be giving all that you have to serve those around you to speak with love, to show love, to pray for your neighbors, to serve your neighbors in any way that God allows you to so that the people around you, the people that are a part of your kid's baseball team, the people that are at your daughter's dance class, the people that are in your work environment, the neighbor that is next to you that you don't even know their name, Jesus has called us based on his example to lovingly take the first step and to sacrifice, and by being led by the Spirit to go and pray that God would give you a way to clearly articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ, but before you ever do it in a sermon, to show it in a life. Do you love the community around you? God calls us to. As imitators of God and as dearly loved children, let us live lives of love. Again, the text reminds us it is the only way, it is the only way, it is the only way that the people of this world will see the unseen God. Are they seeing Him in you? Let's pray. Father God, we come before You and we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You that You have shown Your example of love. Oh, how You have lavished Your love upon us. That while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus to die so that we might be called children of God. And that is what we are. And so, Lord, as a result of us being made children, adopted sons and daughters of yours, that we would live lives of love. Lord, I recognize in this church, it's not always easy. I recognize in this world that I fail at it every day. And so, Lord, I pray that you would touch us by your Holy Spirit so that we may be led, that we may be guided, that we may be empowered to live these holy lives, these love-filled lives, so that people may know who you are because you are love. Thank you for that love in the person and work of Jesus. Let us live in light of it every day until you come. In Christ's name we pray, amen.